This is literally everything, 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 everything. If you're like me, you have a pile of books older than your grandma's mom and taller than the Empire State Building just begging to be read. To top it off, you probably add several books to said pile every week, yet somehow find yourself in a reading slump with nothing to read. Uh Uh-huh, I see you. In an attempt to tackle my never-ending pile of books, I decided to start a podcast with hopes of making some sort of dent in said pile, and maybe help inspire your next read. I'm Odell. Welcome to Just Read It Already. Well, hello there. Happy May Day to you. I'm sitting here on this fine morning, sipping on a cup of golden chai tea, one of my faves. And today I'm going to share my thoughts on Christopher Golden's All Hallows, Oni Wabinelli's Someday Maybe, and Colleen Hoover's Verity. But first, let's take a look at some of this week's new releases. First on my list is The Salt Grows Heavy by Cassandra Kaw. It's described as a razor-sharp and bewitching fairy tale of discovering the darkness in the world and the darkness within oneself. Next is Meet Me at the Lake by Carly Fortune. A random connection sends two strangers on a day-long adventure where they make a promise one keeps and the other breaks with life-changing effects. Next is Practice Makes Perfect by Sarah Adams. When the owner of the local flower shop in Rome, Kentucky, makes a questionable agreement with a tattooed bad boy, a delightful friends-to-lovers romance begins to bloom. Next is The Half Moon by Mary Beth Keene, a magnificently told novel about the complexities of marriage, family, longing, and desire. Next is The Ferryman by Justin Cronin, a riveting standalone novel about a group of survivors on a hidden island utopia, where the truth isn't what it seems. I'm really looking forward to this one because I loved the passage. Loved, loved, loved it. Then we have Chain Gang All-Stars by Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. I hope I pronounced that correctly. This is about two top women gladiators fighting for their freedom within a depraved private prison system not so far removed from America's own. Sounds really interesting. Then we have Love Buzz by Neely Tubadi Alexander. A chance romantic encounter during a wild night at a Mardi Gras bachelorette party sends straight-laced Serena Khan's carefully constructed life into chaos. Might have to check that one out. Then we have Lying in the Deep by Diana Urban. A juicy mystery of jealousy, love, and betrayal set on a semester-at-sea-inspired cruise ship with a diverse cast of delightfully suspicious characters who will leave you guessing with every jaw-dropping twist. Then we have Did You Hear About Kitty Carr by Crystal Smith-Paul, a multi-generational saga that traverses the Jim Crow South, the glamour of old Hollywood, and the seductive draw of present-day showbiz as secrets split a family tree into black, white, and something in between. Then we have The Secret Book of Flora Lee by Patty Callahan Henry. When a woman discovers a rare book that has connections to her past, Long-held secrets about her missing sister and their childhood spent in the English countryside during World War II are revealed. Then we have A History of Burning by Janica Oza, an epic sweeping historical debut novel spanning continents and a century, and how one act of survival can reverberate through generations. Next we have No Two Persons by Erica Bauermeister, 
Alice has always wanted to be a writer. Her talent is innate, but her stories remain safe and detached until a devastating event breaks her heart open and she creates a stunning debut novel. Her words, in turn, find their way to readers from a teenager hiding her homelessness to a freediver pushing himself beyond endurance, an artist furious at the world around her, a bookseller in search of love, a widower rent by grief. Each one is drawn into Alice's novel. Each one discovers something different that alters their perspective and presents new pathways forward for their lives. Then we have Andy and Saunter Were Here by Johnny Garza Villa, a stunning YA contemporary love story about a Mexican-American teen who falls in love with an undocumented Mexican boy. Then we have Paper Names by Susie Liu. An unexpected act of violence brings together a Chinese-American family and a wealthy white lawyer in this propulsive and sweeping story of family, identity, and the American experience. Then we have Imogen, obviously, by Becky Albertalli. With humor and insight, number one New York Times bestseller Becky Albertalli explores the nuances of sexuality, identity, and friendship. Dang, there are a lot of books releasing this week. I just realized my list is long. All right, next we have The Marriage Box by Corey Ajmi. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Casey Cohen, a Middle Eastern Jew, is a 16-year-old in New Orleans in the 1970s when she starts hanging out with the wrong crowd. Then she gets in trouble and her parents turn her whole world upside down by deciding to return to their roots, the Orthodox Syrian Jewish community in Brooklyn. Next, we have The Daydreams by Laura Hankin, a deliciously entertaining novel about the stars of a popular teen show from the early 2000s and the reunion special, 13 years after their scandalous flameout that will either be their last chance at redemption or destroy them all for good. Next, we have Liar's Beach by Katie Cotugno. Hope I pronounced that correctly. A fresh new take on Agatha Christie's classic murder mystery, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, with iconic detective Hercule Poirot recast as a brilliant, brash teen girl named Holiday and narrated by her childhood friend Lyndon, an athlete scholar who fits right in at his elite New England prep school, all the while hiding some secrets of his own. Then we have We Don't Swim Here by Vincent Serrato. She is the reason no one goes in the water, and she will make them pay. A chilling new novel for fans of Tiffany D. Jackson, Lamar Giles, and Ryan Douglas. Next, we have The Unstoppable Bridget Bloom by Allison L. Bitts. A bright and fun, fat-positive coming-of-age novel about self-discovery, humility, friendship, love, and how to express yourself when what has always defined you is no longer an option. And last on the list is Lose You to Find Me by Eric J. Brown. Tommy Dees has been working as a server at Sunset Estates Retirement Community to get the experience he needs to attend one of the best culinary schools in the world. And to make his application shine, he also needs a letter of recommendation from his sadistic manager. But in exchange for the letter, Tommy has to meet three conditions, including training the new hire. What he doesn't expect is for the newbie to be an old crush. And out of that long-ass list of new releases, I only pre-ordered three of them. The Ferryman by Justin Cronin, Did You Hear About Kitty Carr by Crystal Smith-Paul, and No Two Persons by Erica Bauermeister. This week I also purchased Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfield and Dirty Laundry by Disha Bose because they are both selected. One of them was Reese's Book Club pick and the other a Good Morning America's Book Club pick. I'm trying to, trying to read as many of those as I can. I also purchased The Black Witch by Lori Forrest, If He Had Been With Me by Laura Nolan, and What If It's Us by Becky Albertalli and Adam Silvera. And then to my watch list, which is the list of books I'm keeping an eye on but haven't yet purchased, I added The Daydreams by Laura Hankin, 
Hang the Moon by Jeanette Walls, Broken Things by Lauren Oliver, and The Dead in the Dark by Courtney Gould. All right, let's jump into this week's reviews. Now, for those of you who are new to the podcast, I don't dive too deep into the books so as not to get too spoilery, but there may be some minor spoilers in these reviews, depending on what you consider a spoiler. So if you're the type who likes to go into a book completely blind, I would advise you to skip any of these books that you intend to read and then come back and hear my thoughts later. I do add chapters in the episode description, which should help you skip around. I'm going to start with Christopher Golden's All Hallows. This book was first published on January 24th, 2023 by St. Martin's Press, and the synopsis reads... With the 80s nostalgia of Stranger Things, this horror drama from New York Times bestselling author Christopher Golden follows neighborhood families and a mysterious lurking evil on one Halloween day. It's Halloween night, 1984, in Coventry, Massachusetts, and two families are unraveling. Up and down the street, horrifying secrets are being revealed, and all the while, mixed in with the trick-or-treaters of all ages, four children who do not belong are walking door-to-door, merging with the kids of Parmenta Road children in vintage costumes with faded, eerie makeup. They seem terrified and beg the neighborhood kids to hide them away to keep them safe from the cunning man. There's a small clearing in the woods now that was never there before, and a blackthorn tree that doesn't belong at all. These odd children claim that the cunning man is coming for them, and they want the local kids to protect them. But with families falling apart, and the neighborhood splintered by bitterness, who will save the children of Parmenta Road? New York Times best-selling Bram Stoker award-winning author Christopher Golden is best known for his supernatural thrillers set in deadly, distant locales. But in this suburban Halloween drama, Golden brings the horror home. All Hallows. The one night when everything is a mask. So I love, love, love Halloween. Fall is my favorite season, always has been, and I love the lore of Halloween. I also love me a good horror movie. Scare me to death, but the adrenaline rush keeps me coming back. Now, as are most movies, horror movies are very subjective. Everyone has their own definition of horror. To some, it's all about the blood and the gore. The more disgusting, the better. Definitely not my idea of entertainment, but you do you, boo-boo. To others, it's psychological, which I get. But what I like in a horror movie are the jump scares, the tension, the feelings of hopelessness. A lot of that is created visually and audibly. You you have the music, you have the whispers, you have the screams in the distance, someone suddenly appearing from behind a tree, the crazy chase scene with too many close calls, or that stupid cat that always jumps through a window, as it did in the old 80s slasher movies, which are my fave. I was raised on those. Now, the problem for me is when I'm reading a horror novel, it's difficult to scare me unless there's a really tense scene. For example, the vampire outside the window in Stephen King's Salem's Lot scared me to death. I also read a book titled The Madman's Daughter by Megan Shepard, which is a retelling of The Island of Dr. Moreau, and it had some really good, really tense scenes. And of course, I can't not mention Dean Coots's book, Intensity. I mean, the book was filled with intensity. Kept me on the edge of my seat. Now that said, while I really enjoyed the story of All Hallows, I didn't find it particularly scary. It definitely has a creepy vibe, some really good scenes, 
It's a fun read with an interesting premise and a nice little twist at the end, but it didn't pack the overall punch that I was hoping for. The book takes place in 1984, which I loved, love my 80s, and it focuses on several different families from a small Massachusetts town over one Halloween night. We have the Barbosa family who each year turn the woods behind their house into a haunted attraction that brings pretty much everyone in town to it at some point through the evening. It's the must-do thing of the season. The problem is the Barbosas have fallen on financially difficult times, and this will be the final year for the Haunted Woods because the family must sell their home and move. We also have the Sweeney family. Mr. Sweeney loves his alcohol, and he loves his women, and Mrs. Sweeney is done managing the family while he philanders his way around town. And then we have the younger couple, Zach and Ruth, who are the talk of the town. It's alleged that they were run out of their previous town for committing crimes against children. As the kids around town trick-or-treat and make their way to the haunted woods to end the night, several children in strange costumes randomly begin to appear. All of these kids seem a bit off. Their costumes are from another era. Even the way they speak is off. One thing about the kids is that they're all terrified of someone they call the Cunning Man. But who or what exactly is the Cunning Man? Is he a serial killer? Did some horrible crime happen in the town years before and for some reason it's being played out again on this particular night? I mean, it's said that Halloween is the one time out of the year when the veil between the living and the dead is thinnest, so has the cunning man chased the children through a rift in time? If they're saved in this dimension, will they be saved forever? These were some of the questions I had while reading the book, and as the night presses on, most of those questions are answered. The cunning man makes himself known... There are some people in town who are murdered, some are possessed, and the identity of the children and the cunning man are eventually made known. And as I mentioned, there was a nice little twist that surprised me. The book alternates between several different points of view, and often when this happens I get lost and lose interest, but surprisingly enough, that didn't happen in this case, and I was really surprised by that because there are a lot of different characters that we hear from. The book was well written, it moves along at a decent pace, and overall, like I said, I liked the book, I didn't love it. And I wonder if I had actually read the book in October, if my feelings would have changed. It surprises me that it was released at the beginning of the year. It's a perfect book to be released around Halloween. It's definitely one I would recommend to anyone looking for a creepy fall read. I gave it 3 out of 5 stars on Goodreads. All right, let's take a quick break, and then I'll return for the other two reviews. Okay, now we're going to take a look at Anyi Nwabanele's Someday Maybe. This book was first published on November 1st, 2022 by Graydon House, and the synopsis reads... A stunning and witty debut novel about a young woman's emotional journey through unimaginable loss, pulled along by her tight-knit Nigerian family, a posse of new friends, and the love and laughter she shared with her husband. Here are three things you should know about my husband. One, he was the great love of my life, despite his penchant for going incommunicado. Two, he was, as far as I and everyone else could tell, perfectly happy. Which is significant because three... On New Year's Eve, he committed suicide. And here's one thing you should know about me. I found him. Bonus fact. No, I'm not okay. 
There were many things that I liked about this book. I loved the characters. They all burst off the page. And I loved the dynamic between the characters, especially those between our main character, Eve, and her family. The book is well-written, but it's very heavy in grief, as one would expect after reading that synopsis. The author does an amazing job of making the reader feel every emotion and every bit of grief that Eve feels. I felt like I was with Eve every step of the way, and I really did want her to be okay. I just didn't know how or when that would happen for her. At the top of the book, we immediately learn that Eve's husband, Quentin, committed suicide on New Year's Eve, and she was the one to find him. To say the least, it was traumatizing, and to make matters worse, she has no idea why he did it. He didn't leave a note. She thought he was perfectly happy, but obviously he wasn't, and she'll never know why. This haunts her. Quentin, or Q as she refers to him, was the one person who made her feel alive. As maddening as he could be sometimes, Eve loved him deeply, and now he's gone. Doesn't make sense. Had he had a terminal illness, or had he been killed in an accident, at least she would have had a reason as to why it happened. But as it stands, she's left with nothing. No answers, and a whole hell of a lot of anger and sadness. Everyone tells her that someday she'll get better, but as the days pass, she wonders when, if ever, that someday will come. Eve's parents, sister, and brother, and her best friend are with her every step of the way. I loved that aspect of this book. They keep Eve afloat as best they can, and this creates another interesting dynamic in the book. Eve is understandably in the deepest of depressions and not exactly a team player, so her family is left to try and deal with her affairs for her while she grieves. And it gets to be almost too much for them at times. At one point, Eve disappears for several days, telling no one where she went. Now, she meant nothing by it. She just got some news that altered her life even further, and she needed to go somewhere to try and feel closer to Quentin, while trying to sort all of this out. But naturally, her family is worried about her, and they get angry with her. But how can you get and stay angry with someone who's grieving the way Eve is? Now, not only is Eve dealing with the loss of her husband, but she's also dealing with his horrible mother, Aspen. Quentin was a white, upper-class guy hailing from a very prominent family in England, while Eve is black and middle-class at best. Aspen, Quentin's mother, is understandably just as upset at the loss of her son, but she takes it out on Eve because she never wanted Eve and Quentin together in the first place. She feels that Eve knows more than she's letting on and that maybe she's keeping something from her. So she hounds Eve for answers that Eve doesn't have. The entire novel, Eve deals with her grief, shutting down and then slowly doing her best to work her way out of darkness while searching for answers. It's heavy, but it's a good read. I rooted for Eve the entire time and I wanted very badly for something horrible to happen to her bitchy mother-in-law. You don't see Aspen a whole lot in the book, but she makes herself known through emails and text messages, and she pops up here and there in a few flashbacks. It's enough to make you squirm anytime her name is mentioned. It's amazing how awful this woman is. I felt the author handled both Eve's grief and the subject of suicide very well without it being too much and without sugarcoating anything. Despite the heavy subject matter, I enjoyed the book, I felt it was very well written, and while it didn't end all tied up in a nice pretty bow, it didn't need to. 
the book ended exactly the way it should. I will warn anyone who has experienced losing a loved one because of suicide against reading this book simply because it is very heavy. I gave it four out of five stars on Goodreads. Now I'm going to close out with Colleen Hoover's Verity. This book was first published by Grand Central Publishing on October 5th, 2021, and the synopsis reads, Lowen Ashley is a struggling writer on the brink of financial ruin when she accepts the job offer of a lifetime. Jeremy Crawford, husband of best-selling author Verity Crawford, has hired Lowen to complete the remaining books in a successful series his injured wife is unable to finish. Lowen arrives at the Crawford home ready to sort through years of Verity's notes and outlines, hoping to find enough material to get her started. What Lowen doesn't expect to uncover in the chaotic office is an unfinished autobiography Verity never intended for anyone to read. Page after page of bone-chilling admissions, including Verity's recollection of what really happened the day her daughter died. Lowen decides to keep the manuscript hidden from Jeremy, knowing its contents would devastate the already grieving father. But as Lowen's feelings for Jeremy begin to intensify, she recognizes all the ways she could benefit if he were to read his wife's words. After all, no matter how devoted Jeremy is to his injured wife, a truth this horrifying would make it impossible for him to continue to love her. So here I am with another Colleen Hoover review. Spoiler alert, there will be another one next week too. I can't help myself. And I can say that Verity differed greatly from the other books of hers that I've read. And I liked it. A lot. I loved the mystery aspect of it. The book starts off with a pretty gruesome scene. Lowen is on her way to meet with her agent and a publishing company when she witnesses a horrific accident where a man falls and is run over by a truck right in front of her. She gets splattered with blood, and another man ends up giving her his shirt to wear because she says she has to go to this meeting. She soon finds out that the man who gave her his shirt is Jeremy Crawford, the husband of famed author Verity Crawford, one of the people she was supposed to meet with. Verity was recently in an accident that has left her comatose and unable to complete the book series, and Jeremy and Verity's publishers want Lowen to write the rest of the books in the series for her. Lowen is a published author, and her books were only mildly successful. Mostly because Lowen is shy, she's awkward, she really isn't into putting herself out there on social media, and the thought of going on a book tour is very overwhelming to her. She's skittish about the offer at first, but the money they're offering her is too good to pass up. Her mother just died, she's being evicted from her apartment, and she needs money to rent a new place. So she agrees to the deal. So Lowen heads to the Crawford home to go through the outlines and notes that Verity had put together before the accident. She only means to stay there for a few days, but her stay ends up being extended, mostly because she hasn't been able to finish going through all of the notes and outlines because she found an autobiography that Verity had written, one that holds some pretty shocking secrets. The autobiography had been hidden. Lowen is pretty sure no one else has read it. She also knows that she probably shouldn't be reading it herself, but it's really juicy and very shocking. She can't help herself. So here we have Lowen, living in this house with Verity's husband and Verity's young son, while Verity herself lays comatose in a room upstairs. The autobiography does not paint Verity in a good light at all. And the more Lowen reads, the more she wonders if Verity is really comatose or if she's faking it. Lowen also begins to fall for Jeremy, and sparks fly between the two of them. But is Lowen really safe in this house? 
Is Verity really the monster that autobiography makes her out to be? Did Verity even write this? I honestly thought this a few times because I couldn't imagine ever admitting, even on paper, that I had done some of the things that Verity claimed to have done. Is Verity really comatose? Or does she have something bigger up her sleeve? And is Lowen in danger? This book had several twists and turns, and what I love the most about it is the fact that you never really know what's going on. It had me guessing up until the very end. There were so many questionable characters here, and I loved it. After I finished the book, a friend of mine told me that a special hardcover edition of the book was released, and it included an extra chapter. I was hesitant to read it at first because I kind of like how the book ended as it was. But then I caved out of curiosity, and holy shit, it's a shocker. I'm not going to go into it, but I really wish they'd have included this last chapter in all versions of the book rather than just that special hardcover edition. But if you can get your hands on it, definitely read it. If you're a Colleen Hoover fan or if you love a good mystery with questionable characters, then you should definitely check this one out. I gave it a solid five out of five stars on Goodreads. All right, that's it for today. Thanks for joining me, and don't forget to rate and follow on your favorite podcast app, and feel free to share your thoughts or book recommendations with me through the website at justreaditalready.com. Be sure to tune in next week when I share my thoughts on What Happened to Ruthie Ramirez by Claire Jimenez, Kristen Hanna's The Nightingale, and Colleen Hoover's Without Merit. Have a great week. Thank you.